I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is Michael Jimenez. He teaches history and religion all over the place, and he has written a book called Remembering Lived Lives, The Historiography of the Underside of Modernity. We're going to be talking about things like Eurocentric ideas and some of the things that pervade religion and Christianity sometimes don't get brought up very much, and that's why I want to have a diversity of voices on the show. Thank you so much, Michael, for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. One of the things I wanted to do as I was reading your book is to bring it to my listeners, but also um, you're a scholar and, and a person who teaches in, in different college settings and stuff. I wanted to make sure it was accessible, which I think the topic certainly is, but you also brought to some of your notes that you sent me some movies that kind of depict some of what you're talking about. And maybe we can enter into the conversation through some of those movies, perhaps as an entry point, but you can also explain what you're driving at in your work. Basically it, uh, it kind of came from a number of years working in, in grad school, working on my dissertation on Karl Barth, who is <laughs> probably a really, uh, Eurocentric figure. I mean, he'd, he'd be a good a poster boy for that. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, in studying um, his look at modernity or um, the modern age, which is like circa um, 1700, so around the time, uh, you know, the American Revolution, French Revolution stuff, Enlightenment, mm -hmm. um, that I started to uh, read um, scholars outside of Europe, mostly Latin American mm -hmm. scholars, but also um, African and African American scholars um, in general, and um, really highlight the uh, um, just kind of the hypocrisy of a time period where um, freedom, just this big universal idea of freedom, was being espoused in the world at the same time. Uh, the slave trade is going on. Um, you have, hmm. um, you know, so and, and a lot of the just even the concept of like modern day racism being formed. Um, during a time period. Mm -hmm. So I started to read a lot of that historical literature um, and then also um, theological and philosophical literature um, talking about that. And where I noticed most of those voices coming from was places like Latin America or from African-American scholars. So um, mm -hmm. ever since then, um, I started to just really kind of intentionally look at those voices um, and uh, really try to, you know, uh, highlight them in my own uh, in my own research of, of some of these concepts. Yeah. So what we're kind of talking about is these themes emerging in the 1700s about democracy and freedom. But what what's actually happening is those things are only available to who look a certain way, who come from a certain area, generally to males, white males mm -hmm. from certain places in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and really what happens is in, in many places, including like where I went to seminary and, and other places of education, you're essentially only learning from people who teaching that way, who look that way, and there are not other voices available or even uh, there isn't even a, an effort to find other voices. And I think there's just a sort of blindness there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You're in the California area and have you – have you? What's your 
particular background? Do you, do you tell us a little bit about like where you grew up and, and some of your influences? Was there any um, like spiritual or religious influence that would drive you toward seeking that out? Yeah, um, well, I, uh, my dad is from Costa Rica. Um, he came here in, in 68, and uh, he was kind of a searcher <laughs> at the time. He had a kind of a rough uh, childhood. Um, I actually wrote a piece on him in, uh, in Sojourners a couple of uh, months back, came out with me. But uh, which kind of goes into his his story and how it influenced me. But he uh, he eventually found my mom. Um, my mom got Irish Scottish background. I mean, she doesn't really know, but but they married. It was kind of a Ricky Ricardo Lucy <laughs> relationship. I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea how they communicated, but uh, they they did. And then uh, I came along soon after that, and they were uh, very, very, you know, interested in Christianity. They were kind of learning at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think um, that was just like a heavy influence on me is, is his own. My dad especially. My mom has always been a good, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of the naggy. I mean, I don't want to say naggy mom, but she's kind of like the the one that's always like reminding me, you know, uh, of, of trying to keep the faith. But uh, my dad has always been kind of modeled, you know, by the fact that he was reading books all the time and, you know, he didn't have a, I think he had like a fifth grade education from Costa Rica. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. I just noticed that growing up, um, he was reading good theology. People like, uh, I mean, he loves St. Augustine, but people like, uh, Bonhoeffer and others he read. Mm-hmm. And so, um, then he eventually became a pastor at a Baptist church, Spanish speaking. And so I kind of, you know, I was during my teen years. So that wasn't like <laughs> the funnest experience because I was, you know, trying to figure things out myself. I and mean, it wasn't, you know, um, nothing, nothing too big, but it was just a little um, awkward, I would say. Um, but anyways, mm-hmm. I guess seeing that and experiencing that and seeing it, especially from, you know, somebody who's an ethnic minority and seeing mm-hmm. some of the weird stuff that goes on when a Spanish ministry gets going and then eventually becomes a, its own independent church. That always made me kind of conscious of, of my own identity, which I was really con- mm-hmm. somewhat confused about off and on in my childhood. But um, yeah. I think having that and, you know, seeing uncles show up eventually um, over time during my childhood and speaking Spanish in the house like that was all my mm-hmm. background. So when I did go to seminary, I didn't go to my first uh, undergrad in history and then went to Fuller um, Theological Seminary. Uh, when we did come across people like uh, Gutierrez or um, even James Cohn, it was like, you know, the antenna coming mm-hmm. up. Because I, I grew up in L, in, uh, in Gardena, which is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. south South L.A. So I grew up in, in the L.A. area and used to diversity and in my classrooms mm-hmm. were always diverse, at least when I went to school in Gardena. So I was just, and my church is Spanish speaking. So I, I just, it was just once I started to get introduced to this literature at Fuller, it mm-hmm. was just like, finally, I was finding something that sounded a little bit more like the real mm-hmm. world um, that I was encountering. Okay. Yeah kind of the personal, you know, family thing, you know, I was definitely brought up in a, in a family of faith, um, really in, intense and serious faith. Uh, there's a good and a bad about that, but you know, and generally it was a really good experience. I still have a, a great relationship with my parents. Um, I still go to their church actually. Mm-hmm. 
it's that familia thing, but also it's, mm-hmm. you know, he took theology serious enough to be reading it and maul it for myself and my brother. And then, um, you know, something I want to do as well with my own two, uh, two boys. The kind of church that he was involved with was not a decolonized church, though. It was, it was quite influenced then probably by, um, you know, it was probably really Eurocentric, even though it was Spanish-speaking, would you say? <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, definitely. But maybe you can explain, for people who don't know what that is, for a lot of people, that's a new concept. They don't even maybe understand what colonialism is or how that influences religion or Christianity. You could, like, we can back up to a little bit of a bird's eye view and give people a sense, <laughs> a sense of what that is, because it's so pervasive that sometimes we don't even know what we're participating in. Yeah, no, definitely. That would, that would be, <laughs> probably be helpful. Um, <laughs> I guess one thing I try to go over when I try to look bird's eye view for my uh, undergrad students, because um, I do a lot of uh, general ed history courses, so we're talking big, you know, mm-hmm. classrooms <laughs> with uh, a lot of students taking the history because they have to, you know, quote unquote. <laughs> I try to make it simple and especially looking at modern history saying like it really kind of, if you think of it, it starts with Columbus and the Portuguese and the Spanish hitting the ocean, um, encountering, (laughs) there's always this, always this discussion about the words, how they even talk about that first quote unquote encounter between the Europeans and the indigenous people here in what will be the Americas. Uh, But usually that's kind of where you can start seeing the colonialism come in. The fact that, one people group go to another land and inhabit it. And oftentimes what happens is the people like the indigenous are, are made to do forced labor, made to um, inherit um, the religion and um, of the, uh, the Europeans. And then also made to follow the sovereignty or the, the, um, the laws and the, uh, the rule of the uh, colonialized power. So, Columbus kind of 1492 kind of stands as a symbol of this movement in history where Europe really starts to go over all over the world. And the same thing happens in North America, especially with the English and French and Dutch. Mm-hmm. So, but you, you jump ahead of that time period, you move to the time period I was talking about earlier um, of modernity of the Enlightenment period, 18th century. Um, there's where you start to see this concept of freedom and, uh, and even the concept of like what it is to be human and rational, be a rational human being, um, come into play, and that's oftentimes used to like say, well, the Europeans are definitely on the high point of the food chain, and then mm. as you go down, you start to level it out to people of color from various um, lands and races. And again, this is oftentimes seen as justification for slavery. And to make matters complicated, even more complicated, because this, again, it, it, when this stuff gets brought up, people are like, oh, this happened so long ago. Um, slavery was over in the early 19th century. Remember William Wilberforce and Civil War, etc. And I think a lot of times in, in history books where European-based <laughs> history books were very uh, self-congratulatory. When um, the 19th century rolls around, usually it's seen as a time where slavery ends. So that's kind of the narrative. But what happens is 
the Europeans start going into Africa and to Asia and again somewhat having influence in in Latin America where um, now it's kind of um, it's kind of almost benevolent slavery this is a great like missionary experiences as well during this time period but it's it's another attempt at like forced labor and and control mm. I mean this is where Gandhi will come out of this is where eventually in 100 years Nelson Mandela will come out of so I mean we don't for some reason this I feel like the colonialism of the late 19th century is somewhat a forgotten phenomenon because we do celebrate the end of slavery in the mid 19th century but in fact mm. um the Europeans you know made this big dash to control um the globe financially uh, uh mm-hmm. you know through the missions campaigns and uh etc i mean this is why when the 20th century rolls around you have world war one and world war two i mean it's because europe's everywhere at that point um controlling the globe and so it kind of forces the whole world to into this two disastrous wars so <laughs> that's kind of the background to why movements especially in the 20th century um start to decolonize it's it's a, the point after world war ii especially that um peoples from across um asia africa and latin america especially asia and africa at this point are are wanting to kind of find themselves again after europe and and mm-hmm. to some will try to get in contact with pre-european ideas or make a some type of synthesis for Christianity, especially, this becomes really tough because Christianity that was there at the beginning with Columbus in 1492, and so it's a it's it's quite a struggle to try to like find ways mm. to erase that kind of a imperial tinge to the uh, to uh, to Christianity because it was there it was brought in that way you know by the Spanish by the British and others. Um, this is why I always tell my students if you watch if you're a Star Wars fan. And you watch, uh, you know, the the first three films, and you notice these big star destroyers roaming across um, the universe. Uh, notice, I always tell them, yeah, you just think generally. I think when I grew up and watched them the first time, like, oh, it's the Nazis. They're they're symbols of like the Nazi power, you know, the, and mm-hmm. trying to control the universe. And then it, I think I read somewhere someone mentioned it's like <laughs> if you if you if you actually look at it, all the all the Imperials are actually British. It's it's more British colonialism, imperialism that's happening in Star Wars films. Uh-huh. Yeah, so and because we never really paint the British that way. It's always seemed again more benevolent. Oh, they're 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 spreading civilization and things like that. Uh, mm. And in fact, you know, it's there. They have quite a, a sh- shady record, and um, it's like I said in my book. It's it's a miracle that that uh, Christianity is still uh, has survived in a lot of ways for some of the uh, the violence, um, the regimes that were Christian um, enacted on on peoples, and the fact that you mm-hmm. have people um, from this region, these regions, still trying to hold on to the good and promote the good of, of the faith. I think that's, that's pretty remarkable. So, In many cases, or maybe in every case, religion was entwined with empire. As, as empire is coming out, uh, whether it's with the, the British Empire or the Spanish Empire, or even with the United States um, later on, mm-hmm. using its influence in 
South America, uh, bringing in maybe um, Pentecostalism to kind of infiltrate Catholicism. Mm-hmm. There's something going on that's that's helping people to, you know, to change to change beliefs and to change culture, as well as there's this economic force moving in for its own interest. Mm-hmm. And I think we wouldn't necessarily suspect that. We'd be thinking, well, you know, missionaries are bringing hospitals and missionaries are, you know, bringing the the news of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't want to suspect it that was co-opted like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. What? Well, yeah. And I, I think that's what's, it's so tough because there definitely were missionaries and philanthropists that probably had good intentions and probably weren't even, totally wrapped up with the bad of it. That's what makes it so complicated because <laughs> the work to try to like cut the bad out of the good is, is, is tough, like tough medicine. And you really have to pay mm-hmm. attention to who the players are, what the situation is. I mean, it's, it's a tough stuff that you see in history that you have to kind of deal with and mm-hmm. doesn't have easy answers mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the film mission and for people who haven't seen it, maybe it'll, it'll intrigue them enough to, to want to go see it and, and how um, that was an important film for you and, and why. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I think a lot of it was, I grew up Protestant. I, I still am. My dad's a Baptist. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, first of all, seeing a film where, where um, Catholics were portrayed so heroically um, by mm-hmm. the figures of like Gabriel, especially in the film um, mm-hmm. played by Jeremy Irons um, was, was eye opening for me. Cause I, I went to basically a, a Christian um, Assemblies of God uh, school from K to, uh, to eighth grade. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they weren't generally, if anything about Catholicism, it probably generally wasn't good. Um, so film helped me kind of have start to like, oh my gosh, have a, a sort of kind of ecumenical view. I mean, I yeah. wasn't like there was like anti-Catholicism being like, you know, dogma mm-hmm. being thrown at me. It was just, oh, wow, you know, this is a mm-hmm. beautiful film and these people are obviously love God and they're doing this mission, um, you know, because of their heart for Christ. So that was really powerful for me to see. And the links of what they do, climbing waterfalls, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. It, it actually does a good job of showing the, the extent to um, the discipline, physical and spiritual that the Jesuits just to order uh, what it went through. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was helpful. Um, I think the film shows that side, you know, these dedicated priests. It also mm-hmm. shows the corruption of um, the state and the state, um, Spain and Portugal, wanting the mission territories to exploit the uh, indigenous and also to because they want the labor and the resources of that region. Mm. And the conundrum is the church actually somewhat stands in the way of this and eventually sides with the, uh, the, the Imperial power. It's kind of a, a pragmatic mm. real politic decision is made by the, the church. They basically hand the, uh, missions over and the indigenous people to the powers. Mm. The movie also features, uh, this giant conversion story, um, of one Jesuit named, uh, Mendoza played by Robert De Niro. And I think a lot of Christian students, I've shown this in my classes, I teach uh, Protestant schools, they, they are really taken to the, the labor of what he goes through to uh, gain penance, 
and gain acceptance by the uh, the indigenous tribe that used to be a he used to be a slave trader. So for mm. them to accept him is this great you know moment of of actually seeing the gospel lived out of intense forgiveness, and then um, you could tell like he's contrite and and he's totally taken in with his new his new life. The jump start at to the end. Then you kind of get this place where the priests who remain, um, they ask, okay, do we respond by, you know, um, arming ourselves and defending um, the mission with the Native Amer- with the Native uh, people? Or do we um, act like Christ and are peacemakers and basically march to our death? So that's mm. the movie ends with this big thing. Well, the priest rise up in arms against with the with the indigenous against the Spanish and Portuguese or mm. will they basically lay down and, and just die. Mm-hmm. And the film actually doesn't answer that question really. I use the notes by uh, Daniel Berrigan. He's actually in the film. Um, he's a uh, was uh, famous for burning draft cards from Vietnam um, with mm. a number of other uh, Catholic activists. And he actually did prison time or jail time for it, I think. Mm-hmm. So he was on, he was in the film. I didn't realize it till um, reading his notes um, that he's this, he doesn't have much of a speaking role, but he's in, he's one of the priests. And I just thought it was interesting, even him, um, who's really well known for being a, a, a preacher of nonviolent resistance, um, was saying like, well, that's, that's good about the film, leaves it up to the audience to decide which is the better way the one of violent resistance or nonviolent resistance and and understand mm. it's a it's a tough situation you know it's a mm. you know they got they got the 60s you know with this time period we're talking about of decolonization across the the globe the cold war dynamic of the united states and the soviet union kind of mm-hmm. playing chess with the world so you know it was a very tough situation this film is kind of made in light of that and mm-hmm. you know it, it doesn't it's very messy i mean i I do think at certain times a film does play uh, a little bit too much with the white savior complex, you know, with mm-hmm. the priest. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I, I think um, I, I feel like a lot of my students identify with the, the indigenous people. They don't have as many speaking lines, mm-hmm. but you definitely feel for them. There's an empathy for what they're experiencing going through. I mean, they're just they're just surviving in the film, you know, mm-hmm. they're just trying to survive. And I think they come off as uh, the best heroes um, mm-hmm. in, in the movie. So that was very powerful. Cause I did, I did, I did think, you know, the, what's the, and the film does it too. It kind of forced us to say, you know, was it ultimately would have been better if we never, never came across these people. The, if the church yeah. just would have left everybody alone, you know, instead of yeah, right. bring into this situation. Right, because it's it's opening. It's a type of Pandora's box. You you encounter these people, then you change them forever, then you endanger their lives, and then it's a for sure a cultural genocide. But sometimes it's an actual one. Right. And then you you also mentioned that this is um, a film that's unlike the film Selma, and maybe you can talk about the differences, and then also the how a film like Selma isn't. Uh, really supported necessarily like a Christian film tends to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I, uh, I'm always surprised cause well, I, sh- I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but I, I, uh, I guess I'm a little bothered by the fact that, um, because I, I was a kid or I was a young 
guy when the Passion of Christ came out and it mm -hmm. was like mandated, you know, all Christians must go out and see this film and support it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was really still young at this time, but I, I went, you know, and definitely I, I kind of cry at movies anyway, especially Pixar mm -hmm. films. But yeah, definitely it felt, you know, pretty tough with uh, that movie. Um, and I just, I just remember the amount of literature at the uh, mm -hmm. Christian bookstore and the conversation just across the American Christianity, you know, and then also, uh, all the conversations about Christians need to make good films and good music and connect to the culture and witness. And I'm like, okay, awesome. Um, I just been disappointed because a lot of times they just don't do that. It's it's very it's very much following a formula where you know everything's mm -hmm. gonna be good at the end, the bow, mm -hmm. nice and wrapped on top. So Selma comes along and I'm like, okay, Martin Luther King Jr. Prob probably the most famous Christian ever in American history, probably top at least top three maybe the, the best or the most remembered speech ever given in american mm -hmm. history i mean it's up there with gaysburg address arguably mm -hmm. so i'm like okay and it's at the it's at the heart of a real problem in american history this uh, about voting rights it's it's continuing the issue about racism and segregation mm -hmm. in the south etc and I'm like, this is something I would expect Christians to go out and see and support. I just notice it's not there, just in general. Um, mm -hmm. When I asked my students, both from um, the community college and, and from Christian colleges, it's always maybe like one or two people out of like 35 that I've seen. Mm. And I'm just, I'm just kind of surprised. Well, and I think it just says a lot. It just says that we... <laughs> You know, here is a real flesh and blood human being and all the other human beings that are involved. This was often, or at least with Selma and the picture, this is a church movie. These are Christian people involved, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, fighting an evil that we still struggle with today, mm -hmm. which is, you know, you could argue, say, based in this, this uh, imperialism, colonialism from the get-go. Uh, and yet we don't go out, we don't promote this for some reason. And this is why mm -hmm. like I focused on live lives. These are of, of actual Christians, the ups and downs of, mm -hmm. of their lives. I mean, and, and Selma does that with King. I mean, it deals with his infidelity to his wife in the film. So, I mean, here's mm -hmm. our, here's our, one of our great heroes who actually is human and he struggles and he does bad things, you know, and mm -hmm. he, um, the film shows that. And yet, mm -hmm. We, we like these one-dimensional characters who just, you know, again, it's magic wand, everything's fine, Jesus solves everything. Mm. Where here's like real history where <laughs> you can't say at the end of the film, the film ends on a high note because, yeah, okay, voting rights, um, it happens. But as the film notes, it's like <laughs> a lot of people died, uh, mm, they were murdered yeah. by the Klan, uh, you know, voting rights is still a problem and racism is still a problem. And so this is like a clear, like, message the church really needs is to you know mm -hmm. actually actually watch king read king read the people that are around king like abernathy his wife coretta scott king i mean these are all people who have left witnesses and we are just not reading them for some reason mm. i'm shocked at how often i run into, into students and i'm like how many of you read anything from mlk and and you get again one or two hands go up and i'm like 
you're a freshman in college or your junior college, you've never read him? What in the world? Like, what are, where are we failing our, our students? Mm. Now, would you say that, that this breaks down in a, in a color line? Like, are you talking about you think that white students haven't done this, brown students? Is it across the board? That's a really good question. I, you know, I would, from my experience, and it's this is just my experience, it's it's partial. I would say, and I'm saying this with reference to like Cesar Chavez. So I, I teach at Santa Ana College, for example, and got a Cesar Chavez building with his <laughs> mural, giant mm-hmm. mural of him painted on the in the indoors. And I asked them, have you ever read about Cesar Chavez, a speech, watch the movie, the movie, anything? Mm-hmm. And this is clearly like, 40 Latin, Latinx students, mm-hmm. and I'll get one or two hands, three at the most, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that are even like familiar with what exactly he did. Oh, he boycott grapes, something like that, and that's a farmer, something like that. Like that's the mm-hmm. level. Of, and I'm like, I just don't get where is it? Because I, mm-hmm. I don't want to just say, oh, teachers are lousy. It's a, you know, I think that's an easy and really wrong way to look at it. I think it's. It, it's part of like we don't have ears to hear, <laughs> you know, hmm. from from on the student level as well. Like here we maybe there's a disconnect. I, I don't know. I, I think yeah. these are things that, uh, you know, people who practice education and uh, who are teachers. We need to this is why I'm kind of saying we need to wrestle with this stuff, because I think. We need to get. People who are could be inspired by the message and the mm-hmm. example, the good and the bad. Cause I, I think, you know, we shouldn't sugarcoat it um, yeah. to, to pay attention. And then, you know, maybe you learn from, you know, some of the giants of history, their, their, their successes and their, and their um, failures, because mm. um, I think it, it could be helpful. Even within the, the racial dynamic of my students that, even they, you'd, you'd expect, okay, a bunch of like uh, Mexican American students, they'd of course heard of Southern Chavez or read of him, and there's even a general lack there. So mm-hmm. I, I would say, even with King, there might be somewhat of this lack. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and yeah. I think that's 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 kind of un- definitely unfortunate, and it's a little, um, at least from my experience, it's been that way. In your book, Remembering Lived Lives, you're you're really trying to pull in a lot of different people and introduce a lot of different people and also just introduce the idea of finding these people. And as you've as you've done that, how is that received? Do people seem surprised that these people even exist? And how do you uh, how have you encountered that? A lot of people have been supportive. I think they I think students are oftentimes they want to hear more when they hear about uh, one of these figures. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah, I think a lot of it is the question of why didn't anybody tell us this before? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that oftentimes comes up, you know, especially like I go into the, um, a lot of the martyrdom that went on in El Salvador in the eighties um, because I, that mm-hmm. was my question when I started reading on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, so I, you know, when I was at Fuller learning theology and then I, I turned to history, that was what I would do. You know, I'd read these authors and they'd be talking about theology. And then I'm like, what's, what's their lives like? What's going on? Or biography. Mm-hmm. And I read like, you shot dead in the middle of the night, you know, mm. shot dead in the middle of the night. What? 
you know, so I wanted to dive in the biography and I'm like, why does, why did anybody make a bigger deal out of this? Why aren't we like, why isn't there stories about, uh, Aya Korea that, that, you know, we know of, you know, he's just kind of like stamped on Latin American liberation theology as one of these great thinkers. And, and he's kind of one of the more, um, less known figures here in, in, in North America. So mm -hmm. I think, I think that my view is generally the same that, um, other students have is, it adds that other dimension to the Cold War because they oftentimes just get the American Russian dynamic of it, a little bit of Germany in there, you know, oh, yeah. and, and stuff. And the Latin America is just kind of like swept under the rug. You maybe get a little bit of Cuba and then the missile crisis, and and that's it. And so um, adding <laughs> adding this element of priests and nuns and and uh, theologians who are like kind of in that situation of the mission where they were preaching peace and yet they weren't going to forsake, you know, the communists, they were there saying, well, communists are actually having a good message here. They're trying to uplift the poor and this military regime is like killing the poor. So mm. I want to be in the middle of this. And by putting themselves in the middle of that, they, they um, were all martyred. Um, mm. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, again, it's, and maybe this is the the answer is like it's a very uncomfortable history and mm. it shows uh, the cost of discipleship. And, um, you know, it isn't a happy ending. It's not like, oh, great. Every, <laughs> everything mm. in El Salvador is terrific now. There is none of that. You know, it's it's mm. a continual cycle of violence that's gone on and um, and the people struggle. And, and um, you know, we we tend to like take our attention off when you know, the new story loses its, its, uh, oomph. I mean, that, that seems to be what happened, uh, with, with, uh, those, those, uh, those individuals. Right. And, and really, I would say, unless you have family there or, or something, all of Central America, uh, is pretty much treated like such a secondary <laughs> issue. Like, uh, my, my family is from Puerto Rico and, you know, they're, they're forgotten. Oh, yeah. it's, there's still no, there's still no roofs in San Juan, even though it's mm -hmm. 11 months later. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's actually, uh, actually United States. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's let so alone a, a place that isn't the United States. But <laughs> I, I think the, the idea that things are happening that aren't here and that actually matters is new information to people sometimes. <laughs> In terms of understanding theology in in uh, liberation theology, um, a lot of people don't really know. Like for people who this is a new, what's liberation theology? Could you give a little bit of a summary and um, for people to understand, or maybe point them towards resources that would help them uh, pick up a book to understand more? Right, right. Um, uh, well, it it came into being in the 1960s. Uh, usually, it's associated with um, a couple of conferences that happened in Latin America. This came around Vatican II. So that, uh, the Catholic Church was going through its big changes to uh, be more open to the world. So simultaneously, uh, you had um, Catholic priests like Gustavo Gutierrez, specifically his, his book, Theology of Liberation, was really kind of like the, mm -hmm. the pioneering work, at least in the Latin American context. Um, and then others followed from there. I think simultaneously, um, the revolution in Cuba 
we can't overlook that. That had a huge mm -hmm. influence on the region because it actually said, hey, communism might be an option here in mm -hmm. Latin America. So I think that's what, on the one hand, inspired a lot of the uh, um, Latin American intellectuals, um, the, the theologians included, um, mm -hmm. and, and the people the, and the uh, rural movements. But it also like <laughs> freaked out the United States, and so mm -hmm. uh, the United States got involved in proxy wars, and and uh, like the probably the most famous example is uh, putting Pino, helping Pinochet come to power in Chile, um, mm. removing Allende. So, um, but that happened. That's what it eventually happens in El Salvador. It's just a mix. I mean, it's just weird. It's like one minute the U.S. is like, we're going to put sanctions on you. Now we're not. We are. We are. <laughs> it's like they, they, they saw the violence rising. They got involved and they pulled out. And they, you know, it's just back and forth. Uh, so it's a big mess. And this is going on um, throughout Latin America. So the theologians are. This is the history happening. The theologians are saying, you know what? Um, there's a scarcity of priests in in. Um, in Latin America and a lot of these regions, very, very poor regions. And so um, Gutierrez's uh, book um, as pioneering um, book, his thing was like God is um, prefers the poor. God is there for the poor. Like point one was this like mm -hmm. idea there. And he used so he opened up his theology by saying like God's for the poor, for the oppressed, the outcast um, and that uh um, God wants to see justice for them in history, and mm. God cares, you know, about what's going on for them. And so from that point on, it moves into a lot of social analysis, um, sometimes including Marxist analysis. There's where the uh, <laughs> the controversy comes in, because, again, mm -hmm. it's a Cold War, mm -hmm. especially in, when Pope John Paul II comes in into the papacy in the uh, in the 80s. His, his context in Poland is a little different, right? He's Mm -hmm. dealing with the Soviet Union. And so he's extremely anti-communist and um, the the church really wants to put a control on this, uh, mm -hmm. this liberation, uh, this mood. Mm -hmm. And so when the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, that's when um, liberation theology as like popularized in the 70s and 80s kind of like dwindles away. A, a lot of the writers are still around, but they're and they're still basically doing the format of, of God is the God of the poor and will judge, you know, the, the rich and the oppressor. Now what's happening is like forms of liberatious theology is, is finding voices among other types of oppressed across the globe. And I think that's where the legacy is going on now. Now I think like myself, I'm trying to look at it historically in a lot of ways and, and seeing where the uh, trends are continuing into our day and age. I mean, we're really only talking about a uh, about a 50-year phenomenon at, mm. at the most. So it's still very young, and you never know where it's going to, like, move. But uh, mm -hmm. I would say, like, definitely um, Gutierrez's book is, like, the the book, you know, that, that started it, more or less. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, there's other writers. Uh, the Boff Brothers... Leonardo Boff, um, he wrote a kind of intro to it that's oftentimes utilized, kind of a classic. Um, and then um, there's a recent book that just came out. It's called The World Come of Age, An Intellectual History of Liberation Theology. It's by Lillian Caius Barger. And, and I know she's hmm. on, on Twitter and, and she's been tweeting about the book ever since I started following her. And I just heard nothing but good things. But that's like, brand new so that would be a good 
place to start mm. to look at it as a movement in history. And I know she deals also with the uh, North American liberation theology. So we're talking like James Cone and uh, with like black liberation theology um, coming off. Mm-hmm. Deaths of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. at the time the Black Panthers were uh, making noise. So I, I mean, there's 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 multiple trends of it. Um, my book mm-hmm. kind of deals mostly with the Latin American element of it. Generally, it's mm-hmm. it's that um, trying, you know, seeing God as God, seeing the Bible as God is therefore the outcast, the oppressed, and you know, Jesus is mm-hmm. is identifying in that way with the oppressed. Right. Everybody's going to think usually that God's on their side, but it is, at least in the context that Jesus was in, the empire to to have God on their side. In the context of Jesus, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting how we might not think American Christianity is the Christianity of empire, mm-hmm. uh, and how different you would read scripture or come at things with that type of theology not really examined for for what it is and think mm-hmm. this is the thing you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah that's that's good um do you want to point anybody towards your work or any final thoughts check out the book i guess uh, remember live lives uh it's with cascade i also have my dissertation published on bart the one i was talking about earlier but that's uh <laughs> That's currently a really expensive hardback right now with Fortress, but so maybe, uh, you know, go to a, a library, a seminary library might be there. And uh, I'm currently trying to put together um, a proposal for a, a biography on Cesar Chavez. So I'm doing that right now. So mm. look out for that. So I'm in the big genesis of that right now. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, cool. That's basically it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll keep in touch. When that one comes out, we'll have you back on and we'll go over that. Because I'm definitely not very familiar. So I'd like to have more well-rounded voices in my repertoire of what's what's going on in the world, not just what's going on in the United States or in, in Europe for, for theology. And, you know, what you said about Star Wars is, is interesting, who you're going to think the bad guy is, depending mm-hmm. on who you think you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even just thinking that there is a bad guy. I mean, I, I'm kind of um, at a point where I want to pull back to a bird's eye view and start to, to not think of lines, but also um, to, to have more compassion in my heart to not think of mm-hmm. lines. But at the same time, there have been lines, and then why have they been drawn and who have they hurt is really important to, to recognize and then attend to those wounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I know for me, the history has been so helpful for me because it has forced me to like, try to take a step back and move away from what's going on in the current, just say, you know, Mm. react, you have a knee jerk reaction to everything and label everything, you know, again, with the lines, and be able to like, yeah, like, look at the trends and, and, you know, and and it it really does produce a sense of humility. I know it's, Mm. it's actually increased my, my faith in in a lot of ways to be more humble in my, even my own, uh, um, my own, uh, my own thinking in the current times, you know, try to be a better listener and and hearer than, than just somebody who's Mm. quick to, quick to make a comment and a snarky remark, but uh, try to like read, you know, read into history. And and I think, Mm. you know, with the United States, you know, since our context, 
we, we just do such a, a very poor job talking about history and how, how much history is like a shadow on our, our current affairs and try and understand how we got here. Thank you so much, Michael. It's really great to have you. Thank you for having me. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening.